In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. On the last Notably Disney episode, you heard guest Aaron Wallace, who you may know as a great author and podcaster, talk with me about who we would name as Disney legends if we called the shots. Um, Ultimately, we do not have those exceptional roles within the Walt Disney Company where we would be nominating folks, but this was just a fun opportunity for us to put on our Sorcerer's Hats um, in what I call part of our Sorcerer's Hat series, um, where myself and a guest or other guests uh, kind of envision what we think the Walt Disney Company should do across different aspects of music and books. So regarding Disney legends, in the first part, Aaron and I said that we think Disney should honor folks like Susan Egan, who you know from Hercules and the Beating the Beast on Broadway, or John Debney, the famed composer across the theme parks and films. Uh, So we covered a number of different uh, individuals. Uh, You heard those actually both of us mentioned, um, as well as some independent picks as well. And we have a lot more to share in this second part of selections. So let's get right into it. Anyway, I'll digress and move on with my next pick, which is uh, also from the world of Disney theatrical, uh, also someone who has done multiple roles. Uh, and uh, this person actually has performed repeatedly as part of the Epcot Festival of the Arts um, Disney on Broadway concert series, and that is Ashley Brown, uh, who, of course, originated the role of Mary Poppins on Broadway uh, in saying that we, of course, have to uh, recognize um, is it Laura Michelle Kelly who originated that role on Weston, uh, but the original U.S. Mary Poppins on Broadway was Ashley Brown. Uh, she also... Uh, performed as Belle uh, in Beauty and the Beast on Broadway and uh, also originated one of the four central roles in Disney's On the Record, which was an off-Broadway jukebox musical review uh, for which a double-disc cast recording was released. I love that cast recording. It was also, I believe, the very first time that the song... Uh, a change in me from Beauty and the Beast had ever been recorded and officially released by Disney. 
and Ashley Brown to this day uh, knocks that that knocks that song out of the park in a way that no one else quite does for me. Um, she always sings it when she's in concert at Epcot uh, or also at the D23 Expo. And man, standing ovation every single time. Uh, the pipes on this woman are just incredible. Her voice is just distinctive, remarkable, powerful. Uh, and she's just so much fun too. Um, she has such great stage presence, uh, both as an actress and also when appearing as herself. Uh, I've had the chance to see her perform numerous times on both coasts, uh, both with Disney. Also, I got to see her um, in The Sound of Music when it was on tour. Uh, I've had the chance to meet her. She's very, very nice, uh, very friendly. And um, I think also really stands out as one of the sort of figureheads for Disney theatrical these days. I think she's kind of like kind of one of the go-to um, banner carriers, if you will, for that division of the company uh, in terms of the talent. Uh, so can't say enough good things about Ashley Brown. Uh, oh, and the song, A Kiss Goodnight from Disneyland, which was mm -hmm. written by Richard Sherman as part of the, gosh, was it the 50th or 55th or 60th 60th 60th, 60th. okay yeah. yeah 60th celebration of disneyland and so we got to hear ashley brown's voice in the park every single night and i had the chance to be out there then and to hear that and so what a queen ashley brown is oh aaron when right when you went all you had to say was another person from disney theatrical and you've mentioned a couple of other things and i'm like oh of course he's going to mention ashley brown and she was <laughs> she almost made my list um she she's fantastic you know another example of, of kind of like heather headley holding a few iconic roles associated with disney productions so as you mentioned mary poppins and beauty mm -hmm. and the beast and um yeah, I'm curious because I have my own thoughts, but what were the specific situations associated with Disney when you've seen her perform? Well, she's been, I want to say every year that Disney has held the Festival of the Arts, which has been going on something like five years now. I believe she's been a part of that every year. Uh, I've also had the chance to see her perform, I think on two occasions at the D23 Expo. Uh, actually, very soon, I hope to see her performing here in Orlando, uh, the Dr. Phillips Center, which is our uh, hometown performing arts venue, is staging an outdoor, socially distanced, COVID-friendly uh, Disney theatrical concert um, oh, wow. featuring Ashley Brown and, and several other notable performers. Uh, so I'm hoping to have the chance to go see that. And, uh, and then, as I said, I got to see her perform for, um, uh, as part of the Sound of Music as well. Wow. So yeah, really a wide range of, of opportunities there. That's awesome. Yeah. She's, I, I had the chance to meet her at um, the last expo when they had the Disney Broadway uh, performers, they had like a little signing. And I was like, that was one of the things where I could get a, a reservation for. I'm like, yes, I get to meet um, these stars. And I told her, Ashley, I saw you when you were playing Mary Poppins on Broadway. That was, oh gosh, that was back in 07. Um, it was a really nice treat. My family, we actually, they had gone tickets and we sat in like the fourth row and um, that was a special memory. And, um, and yeah, her concert with the other Broadway performers at the last expo was fantastic. And I'm still wondering why it's not on Disney Plus because I know they filmed it and it has not been released in any space. Um, and I know a lot of people would love to see that even the filmed version. Uh, she's she's relatively young. She's probably, I think, the, the youngest person that we've maybe talked about um, thus far in our discussion. And um, But she's made a really big impact across all those different 
avenues and still is very much linked with Disney through Festival of the Arts. She's also performed on Disney Cruise Line and um, in other spaces as well. So yeah, I definitely uh, high five you on that great pick. Yeah, you're right. She does perform with with Disney Cruise Line. And I think that there's even been um, sort of a traveling show with her and maybe three or four other um, Disney theatrical performers. And I don't know if it was officially Disney that staged that. I think not. I think it might have been sort of an independent touring thing. But um, yeah, she's I think we've reached a point where Disney really represents the bulk of what she has done professionally. And she seems to love that fact and totally embrace it. And so I expect that we will continue to see Ashley Brown as a big part of the Disney musical family um, moving forward. For sure. Um, Okay, well, Let's um, move uh, back over to, at least in my case, uh, move over to talking about film composers, um, but actually not even just film composers, but also uh, the world of TV and theme parks um, and other spaces. He's someone who I have long admired, who really, I feel like he's extremely tied with Disney. Some of his first projects were with some Disney video games in the 1990s, eventually TV and film. And let me just, uh, without any further ado, uh, Academy Award winning composer, Michael Giacchino, who is just, um, he's very high up on my list on so many fronts. Like I said, he started out um, in the mid-90s, Disney video games. He uh, composed a Mickey Mouse uh, video game of all things. And in the early 2000s, he became known for his really uh, distinctive work for Alias and eventually Lost on ABC, which were Touchstone and and our Disney owned. Of course, uh, his film, his major film debut was The Incredibles, which garnered him so much praise. It's such an homage to the James Bond films, uh, really reflective of 60s suspense and um, action and his own distinct flair very much comes through um, with all of his films. He's one of, he's probably um, as associated with Pixar music as Randy Newman for he has composed many scores, Ratatouille, Up, for which he won an Oscar. Inside Out, Coco, Incredibles 2, Cars 2, um, maybe not the best piece of film, but it's a fine score. <laughs> a number of Pixar shorts, um, the Toy Story specials, uh, like Toy Story of Terror um, that debuted on ABC. Uh, a number of non-Pixar films that I think people need to listen to, um, which are extremely high on my list, John Carter, Tomorrowland, um, He's more recently composed the Spider-Man films um, that are part of the MCU. Um, In the parks, he's composed the Space Mountain, um, the 2005 uh, version from Disneyland, which um, is just extremely thrilling and fun. The the Ratatouille attraction, of course, Star Tours, The Adventures Continue, The Incredicoaster. Um, He's had other uh, TV projects, the prep and landing shorts. Oh my gosh, the list goes on and on. Um, If you'd like to hear more about Michael Giacchino's work, there's so many different outlets for that. And I'd encourage listeners to go back to episodes 10 and 12 of Notably Disney, where uh, my cousin David Glantz and I actually did a whole rundown of all of his Disney work um, over the years, like practically every project, um, save for the the shorts. Um, So 
he's just a magnificent individual in terms of his compositions and um yeah even though he's done some work outside of disney of course um, the star trek films which are fantastic among others his disney related work is very vast and very significant gosh hearing you run through that list is almost dizzying because i'm just like i love that i love that and that and that you notice every single thing he's done is so good and i distinctly remember uh hearing his Space Mountain soundtrack for the very first time. It was around the mid 2000s. I think you might have said 2005. And I just remember at that time noticing, okay, Disney loves this guy because it was just this moment where suddenly he was involved with everything across all these different divisions of the company. It was Pixar. It was television. It was the Disney studios. It was the theme parks. Uh, And for good reason, uh, just really distinctive, memorable scores, um, adventuresome, fun scores. And uh, that Space Mountain music is killer. The Incredibles music is killer. Uh, So what a great choice. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, over 25 plus years, his contributions are immense and he's still working for Disney and Pixar and and these other, and Marvel and all of these brands, Star Wars. He's done some Star Wars stuff, Rogue One. Um, Yeah. It's, it's quite great. All, all, through and through. Uh, Who's next, Aaron, for you? Okay, well, also a uh, film composer and uh, sometimes lyricist, uh, one of my all-time favorite composers, and that is Mark Shaman, whose very first feature film score was for the Disney Studios, uh, technically Touchstone, and it was the movie Big Business, uh, starring Bette Midler and Lily Tomlin. I love that movie with all my heart. Uh, It's on Disney+, Plus. everyone should watch it. Uh, But of course, he also scored uh, Sister Act, Sister Act 2, George of the Jungle, uh, Disney's The Kid, uh, and perhaps most notably, certainly most recently, uh, Mary Poppins Returns. Uh, So he wrote the score for that film, uh, and then he also wrote the music for all of the songs and co-wrote the lyrics uh, for most or all of the songs as well. Uh, And, you know, Mark Shaman is a guy who has you can hear the amount of fun that he's having creating music in his music Uh, it's often very playful Uh, it's often a mix of sort of throwback with also the latest and greatest in film composition Um, he has such a clear love for classic musicals which i think comes through mary poppins returns Uh, he has for many years been an arranger and producer for bett midler uh, who's also a disney legend and so there's sort of a family connection there between the two of them Uh, and he's done a lot of work of course outside of disney too just numerous films Uh, he produced mariah carey's second christmas album just a fun little bit of trivia so he's been involved in many different things Um, actually one of my all-time favorite movie scores it's not disney but uh the adams family from the 90s Uh, mark shaman wrote the score for that Uh, the first wives club and i think he was actually nominated for an Oscar for that score uh, which is always interesting to me because it isn't the type of score one expects to receive a nomination Uh, but yeah Mark Shaman what a legend and and should certainly be designated as a Disney legend yeah yeah just I I I definitely have enjoyed his work as well I he's also associated with Hairspray correct that's right okay which isn't Disney, but fantastic. <laughs> so, <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Never. It's never the wrong time to bring up Hairspray. Because, yeah. and, and, and some of that, just his musical style, I think certainly across some of those scores, there are, um, you know, unique elements, but there's a certain Mark Shaman flair that 
like I hear a bit in one film and I, and then consequently another, I think Mary Poppins returns, what a just celebration and maybe a kind of a, and, and this isn't um, a negatively, maybe a pinnacle of, of his work to date, because I feel mm -hmm. like it captures the essence of what made the Sherman Brothers songs and Erwin Costell's uh, score for that film great. And yet it, ha it has that same sentiment, but, and feels like it's within the same universe, but it also um, possesses distinction. So a perfect marriage, I think, um, just that he was the one who had the opportunity to um, create uh, the score for that and, and uh, some of the, the lyrics as well. Um, have you ever, you mentioned Disney's The Kid. That's a, a movie I love and everybody seems to have forgotten. And that score is also um, very much overlooked. I somehow years ago obtained um, like a copy of it, um, even though it was never like really um, mass release. I don't know how I got it, I, but it's a really uh, dynamic score that he wrote very, very quickly, uh, much like we were talking with John Debney often stepping in last minute. Uh, Mark Shaman's been in that boat. Actually, Mark Shaman did the original score for Emperor's New Groove, and then they Disney cut it out and, and brought in Debney. So that's right. It's an interesting um, uh, uh, parallel of sorts, but. Um, Gosh, yeah. I'd forgotten about the Emperor's New Groove connection. So that even is kind of another um, notch in his belt. But I, I think you're right. I think it's totally fair to describe Mary Poppins Returns as the pinnacle or at least a pinnacle in his career and uh, not to rule out great works that may still be to come in the future, which I think is entirely in the realm of possibility because Mark Shaman is, is by no means past his peak. But um, uh, based on his immense body of work so far, I suspect that the things he will really be most remembered for will be uh, Hairspray and Mary Poppins Returns. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned George of the Jungle too. That's fantastic. That's just a fun, bouncy score. I, I love that too. <laughs> so I had memories of it when, and I, I still listen to that every now and again. You know, you're, I mentioned those only because they're just sort of on the list and they don't necessarily hold a distinctive place in my memory, but only I think because I've only seen those movies maybe once and as a kid. And so Brett, you are inspiring me to go back and revisit those movies and specifically the scores because uh, I love Mark Shaman and so I'm sure I would love both of them. Yeah, yeah, the, the kid especially. It, there's a, a couple of main, maybe two or three main themes in there that are scattered throughout and um, interpreted in different ways. It's just, oh, it's just beautiful. I, I love it. So um, great, yeah, Shaman gets some attention. Okay, um, I'm going to stay in the uh, world of, uh, well, because, you know, Shaman's done some. Um, lyrical work, as you mentioned, and someone who I'm kind of shocked isn't a Disney legend yet, but um, has made a few extremely significant contributions is also from the world of Broadway, and that is Stephen Schwartz, who- um, Oh, wow. Yeah, Pocahontas, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Enchanted, those are the, the three main theatrical features um, plus, he handled the lyrics for Geppetto on ABC um, from 2000. He did the songs um, from Johnny and the Sprites, which was um, part of uh, Playhouse Disney or Disney Junior. And, um, and also, he had some songs that were, as I came to learn, I don't know the whole backstory here. He actually wrote some songs for Mulan, um, but I guess was ultimately uh, replaced 
but think about Ocahontas and Hunchback, just those two films alone, kind of like, you know, Ashman's work for Little Mermaid, Beating the Beast, and ultimately some for Aladdin, like, uh, talk about a one-two punch, um, and, and Enchanted 2. I just think his, he has a, a very stellar understanding of how to add gravitas to tunes through those lyrical choices. And uh, I think a song like Out There from Hunchback is a perfect encapsulation of that. I, I think my vocabulary has expanded because of Stephen Schwartz and learning about, like, I think of Frollo saying, uh, like, the calumny and, and uh, consternation. like like words that typically aren't in a, a young kid's vocabulary, but I can attribute to um, having uh, learned because of him. Uh, he's just a magnificent force. Um, you know, Wicked, Pippin, all these famous Broadway productions and his Disney work, even though it hasn't been a ton of work, those handful of productions have been so intertwined with the Disney Renaissance and, and then through Enchanted, ultimately a celebration of Disney music, even if it's a little bit of a playful spin. And I, I want to say he's involved with Disenchanted, which is in the works as well. I know Mencken is, I, I believe Schwartz is as well. So um, I could say a lot more about Stephen Schwartz, but I'll, I'll be quiet now. <laughs> Well, I would venture to guess that I also learned consternation from Stephen Schwartz. Uh, yeah, what a what a just a huge name in not only Disney history but in theater in general. Um, if you would have asked me off the top of my head if he had already been inducted, I probably would have guessed yes, which is a pretty good indication that he should be, uh, since he apparently hasn't been. And uh, yeah, I mean, you said it: Hunchback of Notre Dame, Pocahontas, Enchanted. Um, interesting to know i did not i was not aware that he had worked on that uh, tv version of pinocchio also and then of course outside of disney prince of egypt um wicked pippin godspell is a huge one for me and uh wicked obviously uh, you know is not a disney production but i think in many ways is sort of disney adjacent both in terms of the cast connections with the disney legacy and also just the very close proximity of the wizard of oz to the disney brand um there's a long history of sort of connection between those two uh, and so, yeah, I mean, Stephen Schwartz absolutely should be a Disney legend and, and a legend of many other kinds. Indeed. Okay. Uh, who's next for you, Aaron? All right. Well, we said earlier that Ashley Brown was the youngest person on our list. Well, that's about to change <laughs> with uh, Raven Simone, uh, who, you know, is, I think, sort of generationally. Um, an icon uh, of the Disney brand and obviously so much of that comes out of the Disney Channel and Raven was the undisputed star and queen of the Disney Channel uh, during sort of my heyday uh, of, of sitting in front of the TV and watching all of that programming which of course included that So Raven uh, where she was not only the star but also um, responsible for the theme song uh, which is so catchy and memorable um, these days she's the actor and I believe also a producer uh, for Raven's Home for which she has again done the theme song and she's also an occasional director for that series uh, but there was a period of time where Raven was just a big name in the world of Disney you had movies like College Road Trip um, Princess Diaries yeah, 2 me. The Cheetah Girls of course um, I think she's lent her voice to six movies in the Tinkerbell series 
Um, she was, of course, had a recurring role in Cordy in the House, uh, which was a spinoff of that So Raven. Um, Kim Possible, she's been involved with both the TV series and I think at least one of the movies. Um, numerous Disney Channel specials, theme park specials. Um, she has a recurring role on ABC's Blackish. Um, very recently, she appeared in the Disney Family Sing Along series that was done during the early months of the pandemic. Uh, she's on Earth to Ned, uh, which is a great new um, Henson Disney series on Disney Plus, and she's in one of those episodes. Uh, and so I just think, you know, Raven Simone, even though she got her start on the Cosby show, so much of her career has been um, as part of the Disney family, um, including even her stint as one of the panelists on The View. Uh, I got to see Raven as part of The View um, live and uh, just loved having her there as well, which of course is an ABC series. Um, and that's all talking about sort of acting, uh, but also Walt Disney Records. I mean, Raven had three, I think, best-selling uh, studio albums uh, in the early to mid-2000s uh, released through Walt Disney Records, as well as four soundtrack albums. And she has contributed to, I think, dozens of other Walt Disney World Records or Walt Disney Records soundtracks, compilation albums, of course, the Disney Mania series. She's on most of those. Um, she was part of the Disney Channel Circle of Stars. Uh, and so this list is just a very long list of contributions. And I think that for an entire generation, Raven was sort of the face and the heart of um, at least a segment of the Disney company. Yeah, you got that right. You, you forgot to mention her role in Xenon Girl of the 21st century. <gasps> How dare I? <laughs> How dare you, Aaron? <laughs> You're so oh. right. Uh. Some, there are too many contributions, right? That's the thing. The, Truly. The, the Cheetah Girls, too. So. Truly. And she's so young, you know, which is really, I guess, just a function of her having started in the business so, so early. Um, you know, oh, the Muppets at Walt Disney World. Speaking of theme park mm. specials, I think she's all of five or six years old, but she's one of the stars of that special. And so, I mean, literally a lifetime of contributions at the age of, I don't know, 30-something. Well, and I think too, we're talking about individuals who, who are, are so tied with Disney. You know, we don't necessarily live in an age anymore where there's like contract players um, mm -hmm. per se, but I really can't think of much of her non-Disney work, save for Cosby Show. And, and mind you, that was three decades ago, but it's just, uh, it's just a vast number of projects. And yeah, many of them um, singing related too, as you as you recognize, uh, I, I had thought about her um, for being on the list. Ultimately, I I did not, but I think out of all these quote unquote Disney Channel stars, um, who's perhaps made the biggest impact, I think she certainly stands out um, because it has encompassed so many years now. Like it's been it's been more than twenty years um, with um, Disney Channel in, in one way or another, which is really remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one other thing we could mention, even though it's it's Disney adjacent, it's very Disney relevant, which is that she also starred in Sister Act, the stage musical, uh, playing the part of Dolores Van Cartier, which of course Whoopi Goldberg originated in, um, in the film series. And I believe this happened while Raven was serving alongside Whoopi um, as a panelist on The View. But of course, the Sister Act movies are Disney movies. Uh, the musical version, uh, unfortunately, is not officially a Disney production, but I think it's definitely in the mix. And there were rumors for a while that uh, there was going to be a remake of the Sister Act movie based on the Sister Act musical and that Raven Simone 
might play, um, take the lead in that and um, that that might have even been a Disney production. So that's sort of a an almost was kind of a thing. But um, yeah, I just think that's notable too. Very good. Well, and you know, it, we're talking about age and I think that is an interesting component to think about here because as, as we both um, illustrate, my gosh, she's done so much in the past couple of decades. There are some people earlier in their careers where they haven't um, done as much, um, but have been recognized as as Disney legends. And I've kind of scratched my head over, okay, they, you know, they're still relatively young. They haven't done a whole lot, but um, I would, I, and and I, I I'd probably I, I guess quality varies in terms of what certain projects uh, Raven has been involved with, but I, I think you, there's no denying that she's been. Um, just a, a star in, in the world of Disney and and really just again so young it's you know legends we think of these you know folks in their 60s and 70s but certainly some people are, are the exceptions to the rule there so glad, glad you highlighted her yeah yeah and there's probably a lot more to come from Raven too I bet we have another 40 years of contributions to look forward to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully, uh, hopefully we don't see like Raven's nursing home or something like that. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. Oh, I really hope we do actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, oh, you gosh. can write you can write the script for the pilot. So <laughs> I will, even just as a hobby. It, it uh, could be like a dis like a new interpretation of Golden Girls or something where we have all these like has been Disney stars from like the 90s and it's like 20 years from now. I don't know. <laughs> oh my god, that is brilliant and i really needed to happen okay there we go um i'm also gonna my next pick uh is also someone who is currently in their 30s and has been involved with disney for a couple of decades and i was i was thinking you know what why not why not make this person a disney legend because she's just effervescent her few contributions have been significant um and ultimately I think she's just a, a fantastic performer, and that is Mandy Moore, best known as Rapunzel from Tangled. And uh, Mandy Moore became a very popular pop recording artist in the late 90s into the early 2000s. She starred in a um, handful of like teen growing up, uh, young adult films. But for Disney, um, she had a role as uh, Lana, who was kind of the uh, antagonist in The Princess Diaries. Uh, she sang a little bit in it too, uh, which was a fun scene on the beach. But uh, I most know her, of course, as the voice of Rapunzel in Tangled, where she sung. She performed at the Oscars with Zachary Levi. Um, they sang the uh, very beautiful song, um, I See the Light, uh, which was uh, music by Al Menken and uh, lyrics by uh, Glenn Slater. And she carried that role into the television series, Tangled the Series, uh, which later became Rapunzel's Tangled uh, Adventure. So she's uh, she's still been associated with that role very notably. She's had some smaller roles um, in the company as well. She voiced a character in Kingdom Hearts um, for Brother Bear 2. In Tron Uprising, she voiced uh, Mara. Uh, she was a guest star on Grey's Anatomy, nice little role there over several episodes. Um, but I think most significantly because of Tangled and the impact that that film has had, much like 
um, also already recognized as a Disney legend a number of years ago, Anika Noni Rose for playing Tiana. Um, and really, I think it was just that role that she's um, held for Disney, but my gosh, what a great performance. Um, similarly, uh, Mandy Moore, while uh, perhaps a, a newer voice, um, so to speak, in the world of Disney for, for these contributions, but significantly for Rapunzel, which I know she's going to continue to hold uh, for whatever projects may emerge in the coming years. Let's just, uh, let's give Mandy Moore some, some credit and, um, and some recognition. She has a fantastic voice and it's just, it's effortless, absolutely effortless. So great actress too. Yeah, you know, when you started to describe someone who is very young and has been both an actress and a singer, and I heard you start to pronounce the letter M, I thought for sure you were about to say Miley Cyrus, uh, but I was uh, <laughs> pleasantly surprised to hear you say, <laughs> <Yes. laughs> hear you say Mandy Moore. Um, yeah, absolutely deserving. I think if we have a list of Disney legends that currently includes you know, Jody Benson, Paige O'Hara, Linda Larkin, Leah Salonga, right on up to Anika Nani Rose, as you mentioned, then that leaves Mandy Moore as the next in line and really the, the earliest, I should say, I guess the earliest princess uh, voice not currently included. And so, yeah, absolutely. She should be. I think probably the only reason she isn't is that when Disney inducted all of those princess voices at the same time and I, I guess it was the 2011 ceremony um, Tangled was like essentially a new release at the time and so I think that's probably the only reason she wasn't included then and, and I feel certain that her time will come. Yeah yeah and I think that's a really interesting observation there um, Aaron about timing because Princess and the Frog only debuted a year earlier than that so mm -hmm. it was it was kind of interesting when that um, arrived and even uh, and mind you, I love Linda Larkin's voice in, as as Jasmine, but I was also surprised um, by by her inclusion um, as well. But of course, it also extended to the animated series and other projects. So it is interesting when you think about how just the selection process, because I've recognized in recent years that there have been some ways of, I guess, banding people together based on similar projects. We saw that most recently with the 2019 um, iteration where a few people associated um, with Iron Man through Favreau and uh, Downey Jr. were recognized similarly with several people associated with The Lion King. So I have seen like these like almost like combinations of sorts and I think we saw that really come through with the Golden Girls in 09 and then eventually the Disney uh, princess uh, voices or uh, performers um, in 2011. So um, it, it was interesting when Moore wasn't among that list, but I think you are right because she was so um, novel um, in that role that we hadn't um, fully um, seen her, her impact. So I just wanted to give that context too for listeners to understand that there is some, um, some categorization that has happened over recent years in terms of how people have been recognized as Disney legends. Yeah, yeah, it's true. You know, I don't, I don't know that on the in the entire list of people who have already been inducted, I don't think I could point to a single person and say, you know, this person did not deserve to be inducted. So when we talk about, you know, sort of who deserves to be there, I think very often it's just a question of priority, sort of who should be there first. Um, you know, if there is sort of the paradigm of, of a Disney legend, 
on one end of that paradigm, we mentioned earlier, Fred McMurray, Julie Andrews, you know, maybe way down on the opposite end of the paradigm, you have somebody like Christina Aguilera. But even in that case, you know, and I know people often point to her as sort of the head scratcher. And, and sometimes people put Oprah Winfrey there too, though I was very much in favor of Oprah being inducted. But in, in both of those cases, I mean, I, I think you can make um, a very strong argument in support of their induction. Maybe they just weren't as urgent in inductee as some of the others were mentioning. And so that's really what the whole discussion is. But when you, when once you've voiced a Disney princess, in my view, it's, it's probably fair to assume a legacy of many years to come uh, just because that title of Disney princess is so um, important and fundamental to the Disney brand uh, that it really just kind of occupies a unique space. And I think maybe that's all you need to do to be guaranteed a spot in the Disney Legends Club is voice a princess. Fantastic. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I appreciate the notion about urgency as well, because I think that is where there have been a few of those head scratchers where it's maybe, you know what, I wouldn't necessarily feel right now is their time, but perhaps down the line. And um, yeah, I mentioned um, my feelings about Christina Aguilera outside of the uh, context of the recording, but it's just, you know, I, I guess I could think of so many more people who I feel like should, ha hence why we're doing this, recognize, who should be recognized um, in the next iterations, um, who would who we would prioritize. And I recognize we each have two more picks, so let's get uh, right to it. Who, um, who would be your next selection? Well, bouncing back over to the theme parks, and once again, Epcot, uh, I have to highlight uh, the incredible Bruce Broughton, uh, whose work uh, includes um, attractions like Ellen's Energy Adventure, uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, uh, the current version of Spaceship Earth, um, and even the current version of Soarin', uh, Soarin' Around the World, in which he sort of retooled the original score by Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, he contributed to the making of me, going back to sort of classic Epcot Center. Uh, and so, in many ways, Bruce Broughton is, uh, you know, a part of the sound of Epcot. And it's interesting because so many of his works come from a time period that is not regarded as Epcot's strong suit, right? I mean, it's sort of like the mid-90s uh, with things like Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, Ella's Energy Adventure. Uh, but whatever we might say about that time period as a whole, I think his musical contributions stand out as a bright spot in that time period. Um, you look at something like Ella's Energy Adventure, I mean, it's so boisterous and energetic and fun, um, just really a standout piece. It also plays at the park's entrance as part of the entrance loop. Um, same thing with Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. It has just such a peppy vibe um, and it, it simultaneously captures the quality of an institution, uh, which is, of course, the storyline there, uh, but also um, the quality of imagination, uh, which is, of course, the pavilion uh, where we find that attraction. And so in the theme parks alone, I think Bruce Broughton has been such a force um, and such a part of our collective memories, uh, but also in film, uh, you know, he gave us the score for The Rescuers Down Under and Honey, I Blew Up the Kid and, and both of Disney's Homeward Bound adaptations. Um, Mickey, Donald and Goofy, The Three Musketeers, uh, which is a movie that I have enjoyed, though I can't say I remember the score um, all that potently. Uh, but even things like Bambi 2, Eloise at the Plaza. And so he's done a lot of work um, 
even in other theme parks beyond Epcot, uh, it's tough to be a bug at Animal Kingdom, uh, Cinemagique in Paris, uh, the Timekeeper at Magic Kingdom. And so here again, someone with just a really robust body of work um, at Disney across multiple divisions. So I, I think I lied earlier when I said I'm only recognizing uh, two people who I've uh, interviewed uh, for the podcast because I'll actually recognize it someone else as well. Um, so it's three and uh, Bruce, yeah, Bruce is also on my list, Aaron. So uh, yeah, we, uh, again, we definitely uh, recognize uh, some of the same people. Um, I'm a major fan of his as well. And I think you totally honored his vast legacy of work for Disney, which goes back into the 80s and has continued uh, very recently. He, um, he adapted um, Jerry Goldsmith's score for Soren um, to create Soren Around the World, which I think is a fantastic tribute um, to Goldsmith's iconic score and, and ultimately changes it up in certain ways, but it's still very much um, honoring the original. I'm just, I'm a humongous fan of his. I was um, one of the happiest uh, Disney related days was to be able to talk with him uh, last summer. And he was at the piano and he played a couple of the tunes from Homeward Bound and I was just uh, giddy as could be. I'm just, uh, you know, these are people who were so familiar with because of their work in the parks and films that we grew up on. And so there's that nostalgic value, but even putting that aside, just thinking of just their, just being masters um, of their respective craft. And here we're talking about, um, you know, musicians and Broughton is, he's just a significant force in Hollywood. He's mentored so many people um, who have come after him. He's still working. Uh, he was working on um, the Orville, um, which was Seth MacFarlane's series. And I guess now that would, I guess, kind of be under the Disney umbrella um, because of Fox. But um, boy, he's just, he's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant because he totally can capture the right mood. He's very classically trained. The, those orchestral pieces for, I think of like a Spaceship Earth or Ellen's Energy Adventure are among my absolute favorites. I, um, I don't know if I have necessarily anything original to add beyond what you had mentioned other than that I was similar to John Debney. I'm, I'm very honored and, and thrilled to have had the opportunity to talk with and learn from him. And, and he was very kind and, um, and very gracious. Uh, so re really value what he's done for the world of Disney across all these spaces and more. Yeah, it's so cool that you had a chance to talk with him on this show. Um, and I'm so glad that you highlighted the Orville. That's something that I had wanted to highlight, uh, but didn't because I had forgotten that that is now officially under the Disney umbrella. Uh, but there's some great um, musical work happening in that TV series, uh, which is a series that has made the occasional reference or nod to Disney and to Epcot specifically. And we discussed John Debney earlier, and he also has contributed score to the Orville. So I'm glad that you brought that up. And also on the subject of soaring around the world, uh, what's really neat about that story is, as I understand it, Bruce Broughton had been something of a pupil of Jerry Goldsmith's um, in his mm -hmm. early days. And so for him to then get to revisit a classic Jerry Goldsmith score 
in the context of Epcot, which is a park experience that Bruce Broughton was himself so fundamental in uh, bringing about over the years, I thought it was just a really cool kind of a full circle story. Yeah, I, I that's a really nice way of of capturing that. And and there are certain people who are tied to the sounds of Epcot in particular, um, and and I think. Bruce is on that list for sure um, because of just also encompassing so many decades. Like he, he was even back in the late eighties, like he, he did the score for the making of me short at the wonders of life, which many people um, have maybe forgotten unless they were uh, first exposed to sex education via that short. And it was fantastic. And it was, I, I, you know, it was everything from whimsical to heartfelt um, mm-hmm. And, and that was by virtue of the tone of the film, which was not condescending. It was um, certainly abstract at, at times, but there was such a, a, a touching, caring quality that came through in the score, which is a massive contrast to something like the main Ellen's Energy Adventure theme, which as you described, uh, very bombastic and, and thrilling. And um, you, you, I'd want to see it at um, played in a in a concert setting, and I know it has been in, in certain spaces because it's just so epic. Um, and yeah, I've I'm a broken record. I'm definitely in his fan club. <laughs> yeah, same. And of course, we can't mention uh, the making of me and Cinemagique without also mentioning Martin Short, who I think is another person who uh, he's not on my list, but uh, absolutely could and probably should be, uh, and should be a Disney legend. Uh, but uh, that's neither here nor there. So. Uh, Anyway, we can move right along for Martin Short. And uh, Brett, who is your next choice? I think this is the final choice now. So this would be my my 10th pick. Um, so also someone who uh, I've had the opportunity to, to talk with and um, also under the umbrella of just very decent person. He's so um, just so down to earth and um, had a really great impact across multiple spheres of Disney in addition. Well, I should just tell you who it is, as opposed to all this buildup. Um, it's uh, El- Elton Fitzgerald White, um, who played Mufasa on Broadway um, and in, in other spaces as well. Um, a record 4,308 performances. I believe I got that right. Uh, much like Ashley Brown. Um, he's performed as part of Disney on Broadway um, uh, via um, some of these spaces like the Festival of the Arts, I believe. Um, certainly he was at D23 Expo. I briefly met him there um, during that uh, autograph session, as I mentioned. Uh, but his talents have extended to reading um, via just the notion of having written a book for Disney editions, uh, My Pride, Mastering Life's Daily Performance, which is a really touching autobiography. It talks about growing up um, as as someone interested in the arts. And and I I think it was just very important and instrumental where he talks a lot about his racial identity as a Black man and and coming up in this industry. Um, Certainly, he's uh, been very instrumental for the Walt Disney Company because of the Lion King, but also these other spaces as, a, as I shared as well. He created his own um, cover album of Disney songs called Disney My Way, which um, has a really fun uh, attitude. Uh, I feel like it, his inter- her interpretations are both distinct, but also um, really honoring 
the um, the classics that he sings. He's he's overall just a great person. I'm I'm in his fan club too, and ultimately I'm thinking about you know talk about the weight of one's work to have given so many performances in one iconic role like Mufasa. I think that itself is deserving. If you know James Earl Jones' uh, performance as Mufasa uh, vocally for um, both the '94 and and '19 uh, versions of the film are obviously um, iconic and indelible. And, and I think similarly for, for Alton to have brought Mufasa to life in this context in so many, in so many different spaces over the years, my gosh, how deserving of being a Disney legend on top of continuing to give to the company and to really just be a very, um, generous person in, in the, the projects that he becomes involved with. I think his book is a really fine example of that as well. Yeah, that's another great pick. You know, I have had a chance to see him perform a, a number of times as well. And just a really lovely, strong voice. Uh, I can't say that I'm especially familiar with his work outside of The Lion King. Uh, certainly, I have seen uh, his memoir that you mentioned um, made available um, in Epcot uh, during the Festival of the Arts and in a number of other contexts as well. And has and I have always wanted to read it, uh, have not had the chance to do so yet. But um, yeah, you're right. He's one of these people who continues to give back to the Disney family and another one of these sort of figureheads for Disney theatrical. So I think it's a great pick. There you go. Um, I think, is this next one your final selection, Aaron? My final selection. Okay, drum roll. <laughs> I don't want to say save the best for last, but maybe I'll say I saved the one I'm most excited for uh, for last, uh, which is one of my all time favorite performers. And it is the one on my list who, uh, while she does have some musical connections, is perhaps best known for her acting, um, at least within the Disney sphere outside of music. Uh, but that is the one and only um, the mother of Black Hollywood herself, uh, Jennifer Lewis. Mm. Uh, I am such a huge fan of her work uh, going back all the way at least to the early 90s. Um, she, of course, uh, is seen in films such as Sister Act, Sister Act 2 uh, for Disney. She's the voice of Flo in Cars 1, 2, and 3. Uh, she stars as the hilarious Ruby Johnson on Blackish um, and will soon be continuing that character in a new spinoff entitled, entitled Oldish. Uh, I first uh, probably came to know her from the movie The Preacher's Wife, uh, where she plays uh, Whitney Houston's mother. Uh, and uh, of course, she's been in That's So Raven and uh, The Proud Family, Big Hero 6, the series, Elena of Avalor. Uh, even in the theme parks, um, speaking of Epcot Center, uh, she provided the instructional announcements for the attraction Body Wars. Uh, but the thing that really makes her relevant to our discussion today um, is her performance as Mama Odie in The Princess and the Frog, uh, where she does, of course, sing the song Dig a Little Deeper, uh, which is a song that I love. Um, she also voices that character in the recently retired Sorcerers of the Magic Kingdom uh, attraction at Walt Disney World. And she also, interestingly, voices the character of Shinzi from The Lion King. So she steps into her good friend Whoopi Goldberg's shoes uh, to voice that character in Magic Kingdom as well. So just a vast number of Disney productions. And if there was one person who I was really going to campaign for to be inducted in the next ceremony, it would be Jennifer Lewis, particularly 
on the heels of her very well-received and widely publicized memoir, um, The Mother of Black Hollywood, um, in which she talks a lot about her work with the Disney company as well as her life, which has been just an incredible life story. Um, so yeah, cannot say enough good things about Jennifer Lewis. Well, that's great. I feel like I've only briefly heard about her book, but it sounds like it's pretty compelling. Oh yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. Uh, you know, she's someone who's who's faced a lot of adversity and a lot of struggles in life, um, while also forging truly her own path in the entertainment industry. Uh, and you know, sort of against all odds, um, has finally arrived at a place where I think she's becoming sort of a household name. And I think Blackish and the Princess and the Frog both were instrumental in making that happen. Uh, and also, I should mention that she got her start as Bette Midler's backup singer. Um, and it's actually because of that that she is in the movie's sister act, uh, because, of course, those were originally going to star Bette Midler. And so she's playing the part of a backup singer to um, the character who was ultimately played by Whoopi Goldberg. And so it was sort of by happenstance that she found her way into the Disney family uh, by virtue of that backup singing gig. And then it led to a whole you know, host of roles uh, over the course of many decades. That's great. It's almost like the six degrees of whoopee or bet yeah. <laughs> or so less, true. right? Yeah, that's that's basically my list. <laughs> no, I I hadn't thought of Jennifer Luce, but yeah, you're right. All those contributions and Mama Odie's just such a fun character as well. And it's a catchy song, of course. So um, yeah, and talk about someone who continues to be very prolific even um, later in their careers too. So that's kind of like, although much, uh, there's quite an age gap here, but even thinking about someone like Betty White, who still working very, um, very much in, into those um, later years, but someone like Jennifer Lewis continues to contribute and um, be a, a great force and, and do a lot of good too. So um, wonderful. Love that. Well, we've covered a bunch of names here, Aaron. I was going to say 20 names, but I think it actually, because there were some um, overlapping, it was, uh, was it 16 or 17? I don't know. It was, I think we overlapped on three picks, but nonetheless, what a fantastic set of uh, selections. I'm, I'm really excited to have talked about this with you. Do you have any final thoughts as you reflect on, on what we've discussed now over the past uh, couple of hours? Gosh, I mean, I would just say this has been such a fun conversation. I'm endlessly fascinated by um, the Disney legends just as a subject. And I'm so happy that you share that fascination, Brett. And it's amazing to me that we limited ourselves to a pretty narrow range of criteria, right? I mean, they had anyone who was on our list today had to have a connection through music and still through that we came up with this really long list of people who are not i think reaches right i mean these are all people with really compelling justifications for consideration as a disney legend and i feel that we only scratched the list uh, and so it really just speaks to i think the challenge that the disney company has when they have to pick just a small handful of people um, for each induction ceremony yeah, not just that, but also across so many different lines of work, right? Mm -hmm. Because across each ceremony, you know, maybe we'll have a few people connected to music, but it's often, you know, executives and other types of performers um, that, that don't involve singing, et cetera, uh, Imagineers, the, you know, the list goes on. So uh, it might take, even if they recognized all um, all of these people that we discussed today could be like a decade or two from now until all of them would be recognized because uh, it's, unless they want to have a whole legend ceremony around 
uh, musicians, uh, then <laughs> then you can get a lot uh, inducted. So, yeah, that <laughs> should be their theme next time. Exactly. Well, it's been, uh, as always, Aaron, an absolute pleasure to be talking with you about just a fun topic and, and obviously extremely well-informed and, and having uh, great uh, arguments and contentions for why these people should be Disney legends. Although why would there be an argument against it? Because all of these people are certainly um, deserving. So again, many thanks. Can you uh, remind listeners where they can follow your work? Sure. Thank you. Uh, so you can find me online at my website, AaronWallaceOnline.com. That's Aaron with two A's. And uh, there you can find uh, my podcast, which is called On Main Street with Aaron Wallace, as well as my book series, which we touched on earlier, uh, The Thinking Fan's Guide to Disney, uh, with books about Magic Kingdom, Epcot, and of course, the movie Hocus Pocus. And uh, if you want to follow me online, I'm on Twitter at Aaron Wallace and on Instagram at Aaron H. Wallace. And uh, I think that pretty much wraps it up. So with that, I will just say, Brett, thank you so much for having me on. This has been such a fun discussion and I always appreciate uh, the opportunity to spend some time with you and your listeners. Well, it's very much likewise, my friend. Um, it's, you, you bring such a, a thoughtful and as I said, well-informed voice to these conversations. And I, I certainly hope um, some folks on the Disney Legends uh, nominations committee are, are listening and uh, might consider some of these choices if they're not already front runners for the next iteration. Aaron, thank you again. Thanks. Bye-bye. Well, that was quite exhaustive, wasn't it? Aaron and I covered a lot of selections across different facets of the Walt Disney Company, from Broadway to film and television and more. It was great to think about who should be named as Disney Legends. We'll see if any of these come to fruition over the coming years, and perhaps Aaron and I predicted them, or at least envisioned who we think deserve that very prestigious honor. But I imagine, even though we covered, I think about 17 picks, if I'm not mistaken, across the two episodes, um, I'm sure there are people who we did not recognize. So who did we leave out? Who would you honor as a Disney legend in the world of music? Please feel free to send those selections in to me at notablydisney at gmail.com. Um, or use the hashtag NotablyDisney on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.